Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Turn It a Punk Classics, a show where we take old episodes of Turn It a Punk that have been lost from the internet and return them to their previous glory by sticking them back on the feed. You can find this podcast on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and all other forms of social media. Well, that's pretty much it. At Turned Out a Punk, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Lefferdamian. I play in a band. More information can be found at F-U-C-K-E-D-U-P dot C-C. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy another T-O-A-P classic. <laughs> Laura, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to me. Uh, we also have Melanie, Isabella, and Eric in the room as well. But happy to be here. <laughs> no, it means a lot having us in your hotel room Thank before you. a show. Because yeah. God knows mine wouldn't be any state to do this. So I really appreciate you having us here. I like to think I kind of excel in the art of like breaking in a hotel room when I get into it. I'm just like, huzzah, throwing well, everything everywhere. Not to throw disparagings on the room, but no, this isn't broken at all compared to what I do. We got in late last night. Okay, okay, that's good. Okay, so you got some more time. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the show. You're someone that I've wanted to talk to for a long time because I think watching Against Me's Ascent being in our band, it was kind of like, a lot of stuff that I think we went through a little bit later um, as far as labels and as far as growing up as a band that went from being a DIY band to becoming a band on a bigger platform. Right. I, I was just always like just, you know, living vicariously through you and then going through the same struggles of those early band stages too. So I think I, I can't wait to get into this. That's so. awesome. I, I totally recognize the same in, in watching you all yeah. like, uh, from a distance, too. Yeah, so, so I, I'm a big fan of you. Oh, so. well, that's yeah. awesome. I'm, yeah. Then let's not. <laughs> I don't want to waste <laughs> any more time with it by taking up me yammering. Uh, how did you get into punk? Like, do you remember the first time you heard it? Um, you, you know, it was really kind of like gradual where like I... Um, like when I was young, young, like elementary school, mm -hmm. I just kind of listened to whatever and would buy cassette tapes based on whether or not I liked the cover. Yeah. So like my first cassette tape I ever got was Def Leppard Hysteria. Yeah. And then like, you know, I used to read like Hit Parader magazine and like there were some of those bands from back then, like Guns N' Roses in particular, who were one of my favorite bands who would wear punk band shirts, mm -hmm. you know, like they'd wear a damn shirt or I wore a Sid collar because Duff McKagan wore a Sid collar when I was like eight or nine years old. And I remember seeing like, sex pistols spray painted on a wall probably when I was like nine years old and this was in in Italy at the time um, but I probably didn't like hear the sex pistols until I was probably 12 or 13 and it was like you know I was into those bands then then kind of did the whole like early middle school into classic rock like mm -hmm. the doors Led Zeppelin the Beatles and Pink Floyd and like my scene of friends then at the time were really um, you know, like the look went along with that, like long hair and, and, you know, wore like Grateful Dead shirts and stuff. But we got beat up a lot. So like around eighth grade, me and my best friend Dustin at the time, like I remember us having like a, a conversation even about it being like, you know what, I'm tired of getting beat up. Let's fight back. Even if we still get beat up, let's fight back. You know, this new year, school year, we're going to do that. And, like, it was at the same time then where, like, Green Day was really, like, blowing up. Like, Green Day was my first real concert that I went to aside from, like, a, a local band or who, something like that. Who was like the that. opener on that? Um, it was a band called Wooden Horse. They were oh, from weird. Pensacola, Florida. Okay. They, I, they might have just done the Florida Day. So this is, like, what year? Was this per Kerplunk era? Or? No, this was 1994, just as, like, Dookie, Dookie was really... Out. Like, it was before Woodstock performance yeah. or whatever. So it's still early on that. Yeah, but Longview yeah. was out on MTV or whatever. Yeah. And at the time, like... You know, we discover we were discovering Green Day, and then also like I I got Nevermind the Bullocks, and like that was like I guess my first real punk record that I bought. But when Green Day started blowing up like that, that was when like Rancid hosted mm -hmm. 120 Minutes, and there was just all those bands you realized were tied together that we just kind of started digesting, and like we watched Tim and Lars host 120 Minutes, and we were like, okay, X, like you know, okay, the Anti Nowhere League, okay, like all these videos that they played where we just went out the next day and started buying records. Yeah, so that was like kind of like the, I guess. Like epitaphs sort of stuff or you went back immediately to kind of the older stuff or it was a mix of both yeah. like as we were really getting into that like East Bay kind of punk scene with like Green Day all the epitaph fans and everything like that like we were me and my friend, best friend at the time were like buying Sex Pistols records he bought like the Clash records mm -hmm. like and, and just kind of discovering what we liked we got into the Dead Kennedys like and there was maybe like two or three other kids at our school and James who plays in my band included in that 
um, who just like were all kind of getting into stuff at the same time. So we just share records, you know. And were you playing already? Um, I yeah, I, I played in a band that mainly did like Nirvana and Pearl Jam covers. <laughs> As I was one like, did at that time. Yeah, yeah. yeah when I was like 12, 13 years old. And then me and my friend Dustin and James, like we all just started playing in punk bands together. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there was no scene there in Naples, Florida at the time where like there was no one you could look to and be like, oh, well, there are the older punks and that's how they do it. It was just like, okay, let's start a punk band and your mom and dad will let us do shows at their house. <laughs> so we'll do the show at their house. Historically, <laughs> are there any punk bands from Naples? Like even back in the day, I'm trying to think like. Any of the bands like on like incredibly late for the trend or anything else? No, you comes, know but... there was like a little bit of the residual um, like uh, goth scene. Okay, yeah. Because there was like a huge goth scene in like the Tampa area or okay, whatever. Yeah. So like there was like a band called Purulent. I remember from Naples, Florida, and there was like a zine called Demented Kids. <laughs> that it wasn't punk, but it still had the punk like uh, vibe thing to yeah. it. You know, they're doing a cut and paste zine or yeah. whatever. So like the. It started there, and there was one record store called Offbeat Music that was first in Naples and then Fort Myers, which was like the town half hour north. I would stay in Fort Myers as a kid. My grandmother lived there. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Everyone's grandmother either yeah. lived in Fort Myers <laughs> or Naples. But, um, so we would go to shows in Fort Myers because yeah. they would have like bands come through, like actual bands. Mm -hmm. so. And I guess Florida did have, well, I don't know, I, I, you know better than I would, but were there other, like in these other towns, who are some of the local bands that would have been playing around that? Um, well, St. Pete, like at the time was a mecca, you know, like because yeah. there was State Theater, which did shows, and there was Janice Landing, and then there was like some venues in Tampa that actual touring bands would come through, and there was a couple like local bands that were like big. Mm -hmm. There was this band, Car Bomb, Car Bomb Driver, that would play fairly often. Um, there was James played in, James ended up joining a band called The Scamps, who were like the biggest punk band <laughs> out of St. Pete to never leave St. Pete. <laughs> yeah. They could like, they like open for the subhumans, you know, which was like mind blowing wow, yeah. when you're like 14 years old. Um, do they have any records or anything? Or? They recorded like one thing that was like a CD and a cassette okay. or whatever, but it's like, it's hard to find, you know? Yeah. Um, Discogs only. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but so like there was, there was a scene, like a legitimate scene there. And there was bands like in um, the Miami, Fort Lauderdale area, there was a real strong Christian hardcore scene. Yeah. And I really didn't want anything to do with that, but those are the shows you ended up playing mm -hmm. because it's like, okay, well, there's like seven Christian hardcore bands playing at the church yeah, and they'll let us play. So like, it's a scene we can go and be a part of, you know? It, we're talking, we're actually talking about this a little bit in the car on the drive up here. There was like this moment in the mid nineties and it was almost post MXPX where like the, the wall broke down and the scenes began to merge, like the mm -hmm. Christian punk scene and the, I guess secular punk scene or the normal punk scene. I don't know yeah. the punk scene. Well, no, it, it, you know, I remember specifically like there was a huge zine scene too. Yeah. Like everyone did a zine, myself included. And there was what was your zine called? Misanthrope. Awesome. But there was one zine in particular, I forget the name of, that had like this drawing of like the scene in Fort Myers. And it was cool in a way that you don't see anymore where there was like the one skinhead in the drawing, yeah. the one hardcore straight edge kid in the drawing, the one crust punk kid in the drawing, like, you know, like every uh, aspect of like punk was represented in there, you know, like, and it was, you don't see that no, kind of don't. scene unity. And that's what they call, you know, that what that's what it was. It was unity. I think it's because like, you couldn't, especially <laughs> like the, the 90s, you couldn't really afford to be bias on how restrictive your scene was because there wasn't, a, well at least in Toronto, there weren't enough kids to be like, oh here's the oi scene and here's yeah. the crust scene and it's like, sorry everyone's <laughs> everyone's scene because there's nowhere else to go for shows. Right, oh going back also yeah, yeah. to like uh, that, we did play with uh, MXPX at, you did. at a church in wow. Naples Florida, so yeah, correct reference with MXPX <laughs> <laughs> but they were the band that everyone's like they're not a Christian band. And a number of people were like, no, they're definitely a Christian band. It was like the dividing line between me and my friends at one point of like yeah. MXPX. Were they or weren't they? I'll say though that, you know, one band I always really enjoyed were 90 Pound Wuss. Yeah. They were rad. And I remember like that was, at that show, it was like MXPX, 90 Pound Wuss, and like Shy Halud, like a ton of like other bands or whatever. 
And I remember watching 90 Pound Wuss and being like, that was cool. Yeah. Like, they were good, yeah. you know? Oh, there's like, and I have a comp of like, I guess this is before the breakdown in scenes, but I have an 82 Christian New Wave comp. And there are bands on it that sound like Screeching Weasel, but in like 1982. Yeah. It's like kind of <laughs> awesome bands. Some of those subject matters a little bizarre, but, yeah. you know. Um, so, uh, sorry, you went, you started playing shows in punk bands. Do you remember the first band you were in, the name? Um, the first band was called the Snot Rockets. Snot. Well, no, it was the first punk band was oh, called yeah. Snot Rockets. Yeah. What, yeah. what was that Nirvana band called? Um, it, we had two names. We were the Black, or Leather Dice and the Black Shadows. We could never like Whoa. settle between the two. Kind of sick names, though. <laughs> names, yeah. At the time, we thought they were really dorky, but then looking back as I've grown older I was like those are kind of good we yeah. should have stuck with that. I could totally see Leather Dice putting out a record now on like the hip buzz label yeah or playing Riot Fest <laughs> or playing Riot Fest yeah Leather Dice is playing they're reuniting they're reuniting today <laughs> <laughs> so uh, at which point did you start I guess Against Me starts pretty soon after right like you're 17 yeah yeah I was well so there was the Snot Rockets yeah. which was me and my friend Dustin and we kind of had a revolving cast of and what drummers. did it sound like kind of um, we sounded like I mean, we did like four or five rancid covers yeah. in, in our set, you know, like, the, um, and it would, it'd be funny because you'd play shows at the other local bands and they would do four or five rancid <laughs> covers of the same songs in their set. But it was like a couple rancid covers, a couple no effects covers and like our first attempts at trying to write our own songs, yeah. which weren't very really good, but we're heavily influenced by those bands, obviously. So you were a no effects fan too? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. The, the first like three shows I ever saw were Green Day. Then Rancid, then No Effects. The big three. Mm -hmm. Well, Offspring, I guess, would be the other one back then. I too. never liked Offspring. I, I was like, eh, yeah, I can goodness. see that. I can definitely. They played that all the time on MTV, and yeah. I was just like, nope, not interested. It was a different vibe than Rancid and Green Day had. Just it. the look didn't fit yeah. what I thought should be punk. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's fucked up to say, but it was like, this doesn't. Well, you're a kid. With braids? What is going on <laughs> here? You know, like I didn't understand the whole West Coast thing. You know, or like I was a huge fan of Bo Derek and Ten, so I love the braids. I thought it was an. <laughs> awesome vibe and I thought everything about that <laughs> um, so uh, I guess like sorry after Snot Rockets what was the next band you did well then the Snot Rockets turned into a band called Upper Crust and then we heard that there or no for a second we were called Ginks and then we turned into Upper Crust and then we found out there was another band called Upper Crust who like dressed in like wigs yeah, and like, powdered faces yeah, 17th like, century yeah. like garb. so we were like alright we gotta change their name and then we became the Adversaries and that was when it was like more like uh like we actually played shows out of out of our city. We we played our like crowning achievement as a band probably was playing at the Hardback in Gainesville, Florida, which is like mm -hmm. a mythical legendary club mm -hmm. there. But we played there right before it closed, and there was no one there except for Danarchy. And if you know who Danarchy is, you'll know that's cool. But, um, <laughs> but so that like lasted. Was, sorry, no, not no. to interrupt you, but was Gainesville a mecca back then too? Like it would become? It started slowly changing, changing into that. At first, really, it was more like Tampa St. Pete area. Mm -hmm. um, there was a store there called 403 Chaos that like had like a lot of good shows, and there was a lot of like the bigger venues in St. Pete where the bands would go to. Um, and Gainesville, like there, it was weird because like you know we've always as a band kind of gotten associated with hot water music, mm -hmm. but like there was really no awareness like with me and my friends of hot water music at the time until moving to Gainesville. Mm -hmm. And even then, it wasn't like we were listening. We just were like, oh, that's the band in town who tours a lot mm -hmm. and who are really popular here. Um, but so, you know, that band I was playing in kind of overlapped. The adversaries, the ending of it was probably around 1996, 97, and overlapped with another grindcore band called Common Affliction that I played in for a second. Did they do a record? Common? Did you guys? No, there might have been another okay. band called okay. Common okay. Affliction. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we did like a tape. It was always cassette tapes because yeah, I had tapes. a four-trap cassette tape recorder, and you could dub them yourself and scam the copies from from Kinkos. Yep. You know, um, but so like. The Adversaries was obviously dead, I knew, and Common Affliction, I could tell no one really wanted to do seriously. We just wanted to play once a week or something, get together and practice, and maybe play a show every couple months. So I started, like, I just did the first Against Me tape on a whim, you know, like I was like, I set the goal of writing 10 songs, recorded it, dubbed 20 copies on a cassette tape, and gave them out to Free for Friends. Mm -hmm. And then that like then common affliction just like broke up broke up and so i was like well i guess i'll i'll do against me yeah and so against me starts and you i guess there's the first tape yeah it you know it was real small goals like that where it was like i just want to do a tape and i did the tape and then it was like well i want to play one show by myself you know because i was terrified of the idea of like being up there with an acoustic mm -hmm. guitar and just me um, so then I did that and there was probably like maybe a year lag period where I was like 
it's boring playing by yourself on an acoustic guitar. I want to play with the drummer. Um, and it took about a year till I found my friend Kevin who could play. And yeah. then, then it kind of became more of a serious thing where we'd practice like five days a week and like wanted to tour and wanted to do stuff. So where did the sort of acoustic influence and like the, the idea of like, like sort of the more, I guess, earnest song right. approach? Well, there was like... You know, when I played in those other bands, I played bass. Yeah. And so I had like a Fender P bass and I had like a nice bass amp or whatever. But other than that, I didn't have an electric guitar. Mm -hmm. So when I was like, I want to do my own thing, I need a guitar, I have an acoustic, that's what I'm going to play. But at the same time, I was really like under the influence of a lot of like the peace punk bands, like Crass mm -hmm. is what I got into when I was like 14, 15 or well, whatever. Yeah, Crass Records puts it, or Crass something puts up the tape, right? Oh, well, Crass Hole, which Crass was Hole. like a yeah, Baltimore thing. But so, like, there was the Crass scene of bands where, which, you know, like, Crass Records, like, yeah. they did, like, Poison Girls, Omega yeah. Tribe, The Mob, Flux of Pink Indians, all those bands. But there were some other bands, like, there was this band, The Apostles. And The Apostles were fucking hippies, mm -hmm. totally hippies, you know? And they had, like, a lot of, like, acoustic-based songs and a lot of, like, old workers' songs. Um, and then, like, I stumbled into this tape by this dude named Seth. So Seth was like, in my opinion, the first person to do acoustic punk rock. Like it was straight up anarcho punk on mm -hmm. an acoustic guitar. And it was like, you know, that, that type of imagery on the cover where you could tell it was a crust person, like, and, and just like, that was my influence where I was like, I'll, I'll do that. Yeah, I want to do it exactly like that. When's Seth from? I don't uh, like, uh, probably, uh, 1996, 95, okay. 97 okay. era is when they were probably more most active yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But um, I mean, like, I never, never have since crossed paths or heard anything more. I still yeah. have two cassette tapes, but it was like that. That would I think was more associated with like the profane existence, slug and lettuce mm -hmm. type scene, like mm -hmm. which then I started drifting into when I was like 16 years old or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, there was like a couple people who did like distros at shows where they'd sell seven inches or whatever and slug and lettuce yeah and give out print. slug and yeah. lettuce scenes or whatever so like i was like that's cool like and i bought those records and then i was like oh anyone can do a distro so like i started doing my own distro at shows and would order records wholesale from all those labels like havoc and, and profane existence and then sell them at shows so that that's more i guess the scene that you kind of came from, I guess, at that a certain point, is that because I knew there totally. was like a lot of crust vibes, and I guess it, yeah. a profane existence makes so so much sense now that I hear that. Totally, yeah, and and well, like you know, it was it was really detached from any greater like national or world crust yeah. scene or anything mm -hmm. or anything. Like it was, you know, I discovered like Doom Records and Code Thirteen Records and Destroy Records and Civil Disobedience Records and everything, and like was like, oh, cool, that's awesome, you know, and I was really like getting more and more politically minded and politically active and there was like a an activist scene in florida so like me and a group of friends started doing food not bombs down in our area and there was a couple other cities in florida that did food not bombs and then we all started organizing and meeting like once a month and we basically would just get together talk about how our food not bombs were going and what success we were having if there was any like other protests going on we'd share the information and then we started get, and then we then we'd play like kickball for 2 hours or something you know and like drink homebrew and sit around a fire but then like we started getting more organized and we were like we became the Florida Radical Activist Network and then we'd like organize rides to protest outside of the state and just try and like build an activist community in the state of Florida. Um, Gainesville really came into the picture then because that's where the Civic Media Center is still, um, which is a non-corporate press volunteer run library um, and activist space. So when I found out about that, I was like, that's where I want to move. I want to move to Gainesville and be a part of the CMC. So I did. So was was the first time you're kind of going out of state for more protest stuff and activist type yeah, stuff totally. and then less band stuff. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, the first time traveling out of the state was definitely related to those things, yeah. Mm -hmm. So at, at which point does the band, I guess, start picking up and become like where you're realizing this is going to be something, well, not mm -hmm. real, obviously that's a lot, much longer evolution that we'll get to, but right. when's the point where you're like, this is something that people are engaged by or... Well, I was fucking determined, yeah. you know, like I, because when we would first play shows, especially like when, when Against Me started out, I would sit down and play an acoustic guitar <laughs> and a drummer played on buckets, you know, yeah. that was the setup. So you're playing these shows with other hardcore bands who are all standing up, doing flips, doing everything like that, you know, and you're like, and now here we are. Um, and so people would like make fun of us, you know, yeah, like... That's like the most radical thing you could do <laughs> in that scenario. But they would like heckle us, oh, you know, no one got it, no one was into it. There was like maybe a couple people 
but we didn't give a fuck. So like we would, we, I just was like so set on like, we can do this. We're going to be a revolutionary force and we're going to change the world. And like, that was our mentality. Um, but so we like booked our first tour, which was like 1999. And, um, I, I used to book your own fucking life mm -hmm. and I wrote people letters and I called numbers, you know, that weren't cell phones and I like <laughs> organized shows and it was a month long tour. And maybe 10 of those shows actually happened and we spent like a month like sleeping at rest areas and going into kentucky fried chickens and other fast food chains and begging for food you know yeah. like that was the thing back then is kfc would give you a meal if you went in and said i'm hungry really they'd give you a meal and then you'd be like but i'm vegetarian too so no chicken <laughs> like i'm hungry but not that hungry um so just do the macaroni salad yeah, please <laughs> But so we did that tour and it was like, you know, we borrowed a friend's van to do it mm -hmm. and like drove ourselves financially into the ground. Not that we had money at Who first. Who were you playing with on this tour? Like, uh, like I guess, because like you, you kind of start the folk punk thing, you mm -hmm. know, in a, a big way against me. Well, like, I guess Planet X Records too, and, and but right. by extension. Um, so who, what type of bands and shows were these shows with? Well, I remember the first show was in Gainesville and it was whatever local Gainesville yeah. bands of the tour and then we played like an open mic night in Atlanta Georgia that was like no one punk <laughs> but the third show on the tour we played was at this place called the pink house okay. um, in Asheville North Carolina and I remember like it was terrible traffic driving from Atlanta to Asheville and we get there the show had already happened but it was like nine bands playing so it was like come on you know we're not, like it doesn't we didn't get a sound check anyways but like we show up and Aaron Comet bus comes right out and he's like y'all are late you can play five songs and we were just like Whoa. totally crushed we're like holy shit that's Aaron Comet that that's Aaron Comet bus and he's angry with us <laughs> right now <laughs> so but I remember Shotwell played that band okay um yeah. And uh, that was like probably like the first like maybe legitimate like out of state against me show or whatever. Yeah. But then maybe the next show was like Baltimore, Maryland. And Baltimore, Maryland, that was where Crasshole Records was. And Jordan, who like toured with the bands for years or with my band for years, mm -hmm. like he, there was a band called Apolitical. that were a Baltimore band where Jordan was to Apolitical what he became to Against Me. Like okay. he didn't play in the band, but he was a member of yeah. the band for yeah. all intents and purposes. Um, but so I just became really friendly with them and we became like, like it was obvious when we played there that people got it and people were really excited about us. Mm -hmm. And Jordan was like, we'll put out a record for you, you know? Um, and so that was like playing there and seeing that was like the first time where I was like, we can totally do this. Yeah. People will get it. You know, we yeah. just need to like stick at it. But there was like maybe, you know, a couple other shows on that tour where it was like, local just local bands you know all just local bands playing in basements everywhere you went or in a living room or whatever um was there better reception than you found playing back home totally totally yeah, yeah. and especially like the second tour we did which was like a year later in yeah. 2000 we went all the way out west and like we did the whole west coast with that band resist and exist okay yeah and like those shows are phenomenal really great um so, and we just met more bands as we started going. And I guess the West Coast is always like the, like talk about the mecca of all meccas for punk bands, like on the West Coast tour, like you hit the Bay Area and it's yeah. such a welcome kind of place. <laughs> well, our Bay Area show got canceled, but oh. we did play LA and that was okay. cool. Uh, we did like Seattle and we did like Portland and then San Francisco got canceled. But it was cool because it would be like, you know, you'd have a week in between shows. So we spent one week like camping in the woods of Montana. We wow. spent one week camping on the beach outside of Santa Cruz. And we just would go into whatever local town there was during the day, spare change money, buy beer, and then go back to wherever we were camping and hang out around a fire. So I guess you finished that tour. Do you meet VAR before that tour? Or I guess you would have met him. No, we didn't meet VAR. Like, we didn't even... So we did that tour, and then we did... We did a third tour, and that was... Like, a third tour was still before reinventing Axl Rose, our first So the 12-inch was out? The 12-inch was out was on the second tour. On the second tour, Yeah, okay. and that was like... There was a fuck-up with it where, like, I recorded it, I sent the tape to Jordan, and he thought 
it was supposed to sound like he heard it, which was there was a mastering error or whatever. And he's like, yeah, great. It's really crusty. Like, press it. And we were like so heartbroken when we got it. So we only sold like 150 copies on the road or whatever. And the rest of it just sat on eternally. And wow. it was only 500 pressed ever to begin with. Well, that's because there's a sec, quote unquote second press. And that must be the, the second set of copies you just didn't released. Sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh huh. But um, it's, so, it's like a $500 record. Yeah, it goes for a lot. Yeah. But there's only 500 made. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, it's terrible. But some people will tell you it's the best thing we've ever done so well, <laughs> it's messed up right <laughs> yeah that, but that's like when you're when you're in a band once you put the record out there there's no <laughs> unfortunately you're like no 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 but we're doing way better stuff now <laughs> why can't you give this one a chance right <laughs> but so we did like that and then but like i could tell like that some people liked it but that because of it was what it was it wasn't making the right connection or whatever um and then we recorded me and kevin the crime mm-hmm, seven inch mm-hmm. and we had the Crime 7-inch, and I don't think we even had the Acoustic 7-inch, but just the Crime 7-inch we did our third tour on. And that was the first tour where like we were like, okay, well, we're selling a 7-inch, and we'll sell a T-shirt. And we sold the T-shirt for like 7 bucks each, and this 7-inch was $3 each. But we came back from that tour, and we had made like maybe a couple hundred dollars. Yeah. And that was the first time where it was like, holy shit. You know, like, hey, everyone, here's 100 bucks. You know, like... <laughs> We're, we we're gonna do this yeah, yeah, totally we're not totally broke like the band's destroyed but we're not totally broke <laughs> yeah. um so you hadn't you hadn't like even met var just at shows at this point really no oh. yeah well he's you know var is like kind of mysterious and yeah that he's not like a big socialite yeah. or anything like that or uh he wasn't like he's not the person at the show crowd surfing or anything yeah. being like i'm yeah. far from no idea Woo. um it's amazing going from <laughs> no idea to fat records just in the different <laughs> right of the yeah, label yeah. Heads. Mm-hmm, totally but. um but so like we were aware of no idea yeah. there but like well yeah because it seems like you know like like you know and i'm not to put your band in a corner but you guys no. seem like way more political than no idea was at that time. Totally, and we weren't we weren't liked in Gainesville at yeah. first. Like no place would let us play. We only could play at the Civic Media Center, which didn't wasn't really a venue. We yeah. would just be like, "Fuck it, we're playing here." Um, and then like, you know. The other thing about Gainesville, too, is that it was a really incestuous scene. Like, yeah. every single other Gainesville band or No Idea Records band, like, all the members have played with each other in other bands, so we were really virgin to that. Like, mm-hmm. we had no overlap or anything. Um, but so, like, once we wanted to do a full-length, um, you, we didn't have the money to put it out ourselves, and we didn't know what we were going to do, so... Like, we recorded it first, and Jordan paid for the recording. And originally, Ebolition Records was going to put out Reinventing Axl Rose. Wow, really? And then for a second, AF Records was going to put it out. Whoa! And then we finally, Jordan actually was the one who went into No Idea and was like, do you all want to put this out? Like, we still didn't, we had never met Var when he agreed to put out the record. And we had no control in going in there and asking. Yeah. It was just Jordan who went and made that happen, because Jordan paid for the recording. That is so, so did you, I guess... Backing up, did you have a relationship with Ebullition? Like, had you gone and had a heart attack? I, guess? I loved Heart Attack. Yeah. You know, like that was like I, I loved that zine, and I loved the label and records they put out, and we wanted them to put it out, but they yeah. were kind of like that was right when you could kind of tell maybe they were slowing down a little, yeah, and like the zine was kind of like fizzling out or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Kent ultimately passed, you know, and yeah. it, he since came, came back and was like, I really regret doing that. I oh, wish, it would've, wish it would've I would have done that. changed the course <laughs> of the DIY hardcore history. Right there. <laughs> and I guess AF records was, did, was anti-flag repping like against me at that point or well, they did a comp that came with one yeah. of their records and they put one of our songs that's, on it. that's where so i think i first that's where i think i first yeah heard they put i me. still love you julie that's from, right from the crime seven inch on there but they were like really starting to ramp up their record label at the time or whatever and you know we we played Roboto project in uh pittsburgh, pittsburgh and yeah. they came out to the show and we hung out a little bit and they wanted to put out the record, but we ultimately passed. Wow. And actually, I've, I've heard about them coming to see you at that show from kids that were at that show. Being yeah. like, and then the guys from Anti-Flight came out to a show at the Roboto Project. <laughs> well, yeah, people that whole show were like, they don't normally come out to yeah. shows. Like, it, was, it was weird, like, because they're just anti-flag, you know? Like, they're not, like, yeah. they, but they were, like, by the punks there, they were being painted oh, yeah. as, like, A&R people, where we were all, like, we were afraid of them then, you yeah, know? Yeah, well, like, it's like, it's when you're the local scene, you demonize the local band at a certain point, I guess. Yeah, and totally, totally. I remember when, like, 
some 41 would show up at a show. It's like the, the needle scratches off the record. <laughs> like, what the hell are they doing at this show? <laughs> just like, want to go to a show. Just want to go to a like show. Music. They play in a band. <laughs> it's like, now that I'm older, I'm just like, I was crazy. I was insane as a younger person. Yeah, well, it seemed it was different then. Yeah, it seemed to make sense. It seems like it's important. <laughs> yeah, like totally. it really it mm-hmm. seems like it mattered, and now you're like, hi, hey, what? Anyway, so. well, you just see it different. You have yeah. perspective, you know, and and uh, you didn't have the same perspectives back then. No, but um, but yeah, so we like ended up going with no idea for yeah. that record, and and then moved on to Fat after that. So, you know, we and also I should. Check. We're still good for time. Oh, totally. Let me know when we have to stop because I will. The tea bag story. We did terrible, cruel things to Anti Flag when we were on tour with them, but that's a whole other story. And that's that's like five, six years later after the fact. So. Okay. Well, hopefully we won't get to that point in the, this episode of the podcast. We were assholes. So. <laughs> um, so I guess we're uh, from. Uh, from, so you signed to No Idea, and it, it well signed, not well, yeah, yeah, like yeah, in they the just put out the record. But that uh-huh. was it immediate that that record took off because it seems like I remember hearing about it pretty soon after it came out that it was like it felt like it was bigger than right. like a big record coming out. You know, well like, they they had no perception of it. You know, yeah. like their No Idea's perception of us was like that band in Gainesville that no one really liked. Yeah, no one wanted to see play. <laughs> Um, and like they didn't realize that we had already actually toured and that there were cities where people had heard about us and were really excited about us. So the record came out and it started doing really well just by underground word of mouth. Yeah, like, like who not, cha- would do, was it Maximum Rock and Roll write about it or did Yeah, Maximum Rock and Roll really yeah. championed us at first and like uh, there was just a lot Heart of Attack too, I think. Yeah, gave yeah, really yeah good like idea. a lot of people like really just like were into the record mm-hmm. and we were just like, Okay, now we can really tour, let's go, you know? Yeah. And so you start touring kind of immediately. And that record just seems like... I'm getting it. At that point, did you get like people like like the rabid fan base begin forming? Because it just seems... Like, I remember there's almost like... like And this relates... You know, I'm going to force myself back into yeah. your narrative right now. But it just seems like there was like a... There's almost like turnovers of fans mm-hmm. when you're a band like, you know, our bands and been around for a long time. And like that... Was there like that new kind of cult a ground against me that forms around. That I think record. that really started with crime, where really? like yeah, yeah. we we would notice like when we would do a tour that there would be faces that we'd yeah. recognize that would be at multiple shows yeah. and that like you could tell, you know. Um, so like it just only grew with the full length or whatever, and as we toured more, because yeah, I mean like that record came out and immediately we're like, okay, let's go on tour. And our bass player at the time, Dustin, who I like grew up in bands with or whatever, he quit to go back to college. Mm-hmm. But it was like we knew it was coming, so it was like we did our last tour with him, and then we're like, okay, fuck, what do we do? <laughs> like, let's find a bass player. So that was when Andrew came into the picture. <laughs> and uh, I guess subsequently, have you met Axl Rose? No, I met like Slash. I've met Duff. Yeah. I've met um, Matt Sorum, but never Axl. Never Axl. Yeah. I saw them play like that, whatever version of Guns N' Roses at Reading and Leeds in like 2010 or whatever. Yeah. It was terrible. Yeah. 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 Not not necessarily. I, and I even like use your illusions volume one too. So it would have been one solid record. You yeah, know, they just like there's no need to have that many Paul McCartney songs. Guns and Roses record. Couple couple ballad cuts on yeah, that on that I mean, one. It just got ridiculous. But has your opinion on Axl Rose changed having been in? Like I think I find I, I have a lot more sympathy for people in bands that as a younger punk I was just like fuck that band. Totally, totally. I mean, well, just like the level of like attention yeah. that he got and like how weird I'm sure fans are with yeah. him, you yeah. know, like you, you, you end up isolating yourself cause you have to, yeah. you know, like, um, so I totally get that. Although I could like talk shit on guns and roses all day, like <laughs> with the current version and, and get really into that. But that's like a whole podcast. In itself, you know? Well, if you want to come back for part two, that's <laughs> yeah. the GNR. The, we'll go deep. Okay. I can really break it down. I've read like all the books. I like, you know, that I know was, my stuff. Well, that's for me too. Like I think, I, well, I think everything you've brought up, I just like, I relate to so much because it's like, I think, I think being of the same age too, but like mm-hmm. guns and roses was that band. Like, yeah. Like, without them, who knows? Well, they were dangerous. dangerous like when exactly. I was eight years old, I was like, yeah. "Holy shit, this band is like real," Compa- especially compared to all those other bands at the time. Yeah, like you know, Poison and Motley. Oh Crew yeah, Warrant. Come on, Warrant. you know, yeah. like um, White Snake. Like, <laughs> but that was, you know, that's the thing that cr- pisses me off most about that current incarnation of Guns N' Roses was it's like, okay, fine, replace the whole band, but like 
at least get the replacement members to dress cool. Yeah. Like Guns N' Roses used to look fucking cool. Yeah. And yeah. these people look like they shopped at Hot Topic. <laughs> you know, it doesn't look cool. Uh, I know, but it's but also that, you know, like you said, too, Duff McKagan, like, finding out, like, oh, Duff is in this band called The Farts, and then Alternative Tentacles reissued The Farts record. And I'm right. like, oh, this is, like, my gateway to that whole yeah. West Coast scene. Well, that, that was before the internet, is how yep. you discovered bands. Yep. It's like, okay, they're wearing that shirt, or okay, they, they think this band and their liner notes, so, yeah, I'll check out Jughead's Revenge. What next, you know? Like, so, I guess, when did you first meet Fat Mike? And, and or, or Well, with Fat, like, we, you know, we put out that record, and we did an EP with no, with no idea, yeah. and then we had, like, done a tour with Hot Water Music, and really it started to grow, and I got, like, an email from Toby, who worked at Fat. And yep. he was like, do you want to do one of the Fat Records 7-inch of the month Red clubs? Scare Records. Yeah, yeah, who, of, now of, of Red Scare. <laughs> yeah. and, I was, and we were like, well, we just did this 7-inch. We don't really want to do a 7-inch. We want to do another full length as our next thing. So I was like, well, what about, what would Fat do the next full length? And he was like, well, let me talk to Mike. And so then, like, maybe three days later, Mike called on the phone and <laughs> You know, I was like, oh, my God, I'm talking about Mike. Mike. <laughs> you know? Like, totally just, like, blown away that he likes my band and wants to put out the record. You yeah. Because was, was, did you have any qualms about signing to Fat, or was it not an issue for Well, you? it wasn't a signing thing. Yeah, it wasn't you know, a signing. You know, like, that, exactly. was, that was the thing. Like, and that was, like, you know, going back to Anti-Flag, is like, they wanted us to sign a contract. Yeah. So we were like, well, no. Was it a subsidiary of a major by that point, AF Records? Or was I'm it not ever? sure, no. but it was, like, a three-record contract. Because they signed so. to Sony at a certain point, right? Yeah, but yeah. that might have been after okay, that, okay, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. But so, like, you know, no idea, Mike... Like, they were both, like, Mike was, like, no contract, handshake, deal, pump. Oh, yeah. You know, so it was, there was no moral, like, you know, we weren't no, there I, yet. And, and I was don't, just like, okay, it's a punk that I grew up going to see play, and they want to put out a record. Yeah, know? like, and, I, and obviously, I'm a you know huge Fat Records fan. It's yeah. defining mm -hmm. my, my life and everything. But at the same time, I remember having a conversation with, uh, I don't want to throw the member of this band under the bus, but someone in the band, The Observers, and they were mm -hmm. like, oh, I was a big, huge Against Me fan, but now they signed a Fat. <laughs> and it was almost like, you know, like at the time, you know, once again, in perspective, it's like, oh, but Fat is like the most straight-up label in the world. <laughs> Right, no band yeah. ever has a bad word to say about it except for maybe Screeching Weasel, but they don't count. You know? <laughs> yeah. So. And also, not to mention, it's like, I always felt at the time, like, oh, did I, like, not disclose that I grew up listening yeah, to fat yeah, bands? Yeah. Like, didn't you realize that about me? I know I like a lot of other punk bands that are may maybe more hardcore, but, like, you know, second show I ever went to or something. Yeah. You know? Like, it's, it just, it didn't make sense to us because yeah. we recognized the lineage and mm -hmm. recognized where the desire came from mm -hmm. in not an opportunistic way of more of just a, like, holy shit fat records wants to work with us you <laughs> yeah. know so i guess as you're maybe you just as a younger person i'm saying this as being that person you find you, you your ownership over a band where you just can't see why they would not make the exact same choice that you make for them in your ma imagination yeah totally well but you you know you see it in different ways too because like i always understood that but then i like understood the other side of it of like okay like realistically if we would have stayed on no idea records we'd have been dead you mm -hmm. know like mm -hmm. we would have never done anything more than we probably would have put out like one or two more records and then interest would have died away yeah. you know and then like it just would have fizzled same with staying on fat eventually it was like i was always of the mentality that you have to keep moving and keep doing different things just in order to challenge yourself to make it interesting to not become complacent and to have as many experiences as you, as you can with your band because you don't know how long it'll last and you mm -hmm. don't know what'll happen next so at this point, did you see, like, I guess you, you started doing a lot bigger tours too, right? When you, the Fat Record Well, that we, Anti-Flag took us on tour. It was like the Death of a Nation tour, where it was Anti-Flag Rise Against Us and None More Black and then a different AF Records band. And that was like three months long. Wow. So we did that tour. That Just in like, America or North America? It say? came to, can, yeah. I know, yeah, I think yeah. I saw that show mm -hmm. in, in Toronto at the Opera House. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was it the Dopamines was the AF Record band? No, it was like, it was like what, what, Jughead from Screeching Weasel's band, wasn't it? I'm not sure. Again, okay. it like every week oh, or so. So it, it was a change. different okay, AF yeah, Records yeah. band. But um, but that was like our first real tour with like laminates, yeah. you know, and everything <laughs> like that. And then after that, we just like kept going because mm -hmm. we got like a booking agent as that tour happened. And then like real tours started coming in and it was like a, media, a major label in in interest after that so and so was sire the first one they talked no obviously probably not right? no the first i mean really like first time around it was universal but it, it was like first 
after we put out as the eternal cowboy we were courted by every single major label and we were given million dollar record deals wow. or like offers by every major label like virgin sony um universal and warner all offered What's it like to be in that position? <laughs> it was crazy. You know, like, because yeah. I was like, you know, again, coming from having listened to the Sex Pistols, I was like, great rock and roll swindle. Yeah. Here we are. Yeah. This is our chance to do that yeah. for real. So, like, we would just, like, anytime they were like, do you want to be flown to this place and be taken out to these extravagant dinners and come and raid our CD cabinets, we're like, yes. And we would go and, like, order the most ridiculous shit. We'd take all their CDs from their CD cabinets and then go sell the CDs <laughs> yeah. immediately. And it was just like we just wanted to have fun with it we even like when they first coming in we as offers first started coming in we had toby pose as our lawyer and take calls with the record labels you know we were just like we were like let's fuck with them and then we had our friend jake come on tour with us and make a documentary around that with the idea of just fucking with major labels mm -hmm. so it did was there ever a point at that point where you, would you were you thinking at that point that ultimately i'm going to pick one of these? No, we had no intention at first, you yeah. know, because we were really still of that, like, you know, the, it was the still the punk rock thing. And then there was like a couple things that were like really eye opening that like kind of changed my perspective on that stuff. And, you know, a lot of it had to do with realizing more and more that it was like, because my biggest thing was like the capitalist argument, you know, being anti-capitalist and, and feeling like you don't want capitalism in punk rock, but then ultimate reali ultimately realizing that a record label is a record label is a record label and that small capitalism isn't any better than big capitalism. Is If someone's making a buck off of it, it's just about ethics and mm -hmm. who's doing it right and who's doing it fair. But, um... And then there was another incident too, like where there was, we got so much shit because of fat records, you know, from like getting our tires slashed to like people physically attacking us to like really max. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Like we For, played this just before the major labels. Yeah. yeah that's stuff, I, I remember hearing about stuff. the major labels. We stuff played afterwards. a Polish American hall on long Island that was set up by a 16 year old fan of the band who charged $8 at the door and people were physically stopping us from playing our instruments and then slashed our van tires after the show. And then the same kid who slashed our van tires after that show, we played a free show in Brooklyn. Not long after that, he came and he like threw stink bombs on stage. And then there was like a fight that was about to happen outside after the show. And it was stupid. You know, it didn't look pretty or anything like that. But like, we're all like bowing up on each other, standing there. And I looked over and there was one of his friends, a punk who picks up a brick. And I was like, wow, like this kid will fucking smash my head in because we're on fat, you're on fat, you know? And, but we're also supposed to be punks here. Like, this is just fucked. Fuck yeah. this, fuck this scene, fuck all of you, you know? And that just really, like, then it became, like, oh, if this decision will piss off punks, let's do it, yeah. you know? like, Yeah, and, and well, that's an insane thing. <laughs> and it's over a band being on a label. Mm -hmm. and, and, a a, fair and label. it's a fair like, label. Like, the most, most, like, fair, upfront label we've well, ever worked with. I have been, now that I've been doing this for a long time, I have been, you know, in some label situations where I look back on it, I'm like, that wasn't a good situation. You never hear anyone say that about fat. You, actually, you never hear anyone say about it, no idea, either. Mm -hmm. Like, that's, like, a situation where a lot of people are, like, still doing records with them years later. And so, it, it just... Yeah, like it's funny what you don't understand necessarily from looking at the outside of situations versus later on. Right. Mm -hmm. So at that point, do you kind of call back some of these labels and you're like, yo. No, well, we thought like surely doing, like surely like giving them a run around yeah. and then putting yeah. out a documentary, like where we're obviously fucking with them that this after this next record, there'll be no interest. But it was like they came back like double hard, you know, like they were just <laughs> really pursuing it. So at that point, you know, <clears throat> I kind of felt like, and I don't mean this in a talking shit way at all, but it was like, Mike, Fat Mike didn't like searching for a former clarity. And he was very vocal yeah, about he said that, that with us, you yeah. know, like, and so at that point, then it was like, okay, well, you know, like people always have this illusion, like that you work with a major label and they start trying to creatively control you, but really it's the same on any label. Yeah. And that if you're working with someone, they're going to have their opinions and yeah. they're going to tell you their opinions. It's just as to whether or not you want to listen to that. So fuck it, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then like when the major labels came back around again, it was just like, okay, well this is stupid. You know, like this is probably not going to happen a third time. And, you know, we had been touring so much that like more and more and more like the interpersonal relationships within the band were just falling apart. Mm -hmm. So it was like, if we do this, it'll be another step that will require us to continue as a band and like make it work still. So yeah. it was just like, 
Yeah, let's do it. And Sire, like, was Sire. So well, yeah, did you meet Seymour Stein? Was yeah, first... Seymour Stein was really involved, and he would, like, I mean, the dude was, like, 80 years old yeah. then, and he was, like, coming out, and he would sit on stage the whole time and watch our shows and be like, that was great, you know? Like, so we're like, holy fuck, Seymour Stein, the real Seymour Stein. Yeah, the like, real Seymour Stein. <laughs> <laughs> but they were, they were, they were cool, you know? Yeah. So do you look back on that, and you're like, are you happy with that experience, being on the major and everything like that? Obviously, it yeah. helped the band get to another level and things like that it's you know it's weird it's really weird like when you have like perspective to look back on stuff on what bugs you and what doesn't bug you because like that first record we did with sire was the best experience where yeah. they're really excited about the band yeah. you know we got to work with butch vig which was like ultimately made the decision of signing to a major major label alone worth it, it was just the chance to make two records with him but after that first record like i knew it i wasn't stupid i was like look when we got the contract, I was like, it needs to be a two-firm record deal. Like, they need to be guaranteed they'll do a second record because there's no way our first record is going to go gold or yeah, platinum. Yeah. And if you don't go gold or platinum, <laughs> there's screwed. no way the fucking label is going to care about yeah. the second record, yeah. you know? So, like, we, I just knew, you know, like, that that was going to be the case. And then there ended up being a lot of, like, critical acclaim, like, Spin named the record album of the year or yeah. whatever, but that didn't translate into sales. It just did, like, a little bit better than our previous records mm -hmm. done, which was still great by our standards, you know? Like, um... But so that first record was a great time. The second record was still a good time. There was like extenuating circumstances on our around our band that made it miserable and the label was falling apart, but it was still like okay, we're making another record with Butch. This yeah. is great, you know? Like Well, and, and Butch Vig like, you know, I love those records. I think they they stand up, but people like a lot of people once again like this next wave of fans will be like, "Oh, the sound changed when Butch Vig came in. He polished it too much and things like that." Do you look back on those records and you think they say I think they hold up great. I love his production. Right. Well, too. and but but also but like that was me. That yeah. wasn't Butch so yeah. much. Like yeah. so our first record was was definitely like a more um you know, more organic, if you want to put it like that, approach to yeah. recording a record, you know, like we hadn't, it was long, it took longer, but it wasn't that different from like the record we did with Jay Robbins or mm -hmm, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, the second record, knowing that it was like, okay, well, we're certainly going to get dropped after this record, you know, and it probably won't, it, there's no way it's going to do, it, like, it, it won't do any better than the previous record or whatever. So like, what is the most I can get out of this opportunity right now? I'm working with someone who's made some of the, my favorite records of all time. Like if there's a technique that, you know, recording, I want to, I want to learn it now. Yeah. So the only way I can learn that is if we use my record or our record mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. So like, sure. Show me how to fucking use Melodyne on vocals. Let's fucking like, I want to know every single thing so that I can use that after mm -hmm. the fact because that's more valuable than any other fucking peripheral bullshit, you know? Do you think that, like, that, was that experience essential to kind of become the producer? Yeah, with that intention and yeah. then with the next record of being like, okay, now let's do our own studio and now, yeah. like, because the first time you go into a studio, like, I don't, I didn't know how to fucking compressor worked, yeah. you know? Like, I didn't understand all anything. I still don't. <laughs> right, me neither, actually, but, like, I know what they look like. Yeah. That put you one ahead of me, right? Because I still don't know what they look like. <laughs> but, um, so, like, yeah, I mean, it was like each record you made, you got a little more comfortable yeah. in the studio. But just that opportunity was so, like, you know, in-depth and, like, you're working in these studios that you could never otherwise afford mm -hmm. that you're just like, let's take advantage of this and get the most out of it and not have a negative attitude but have a positive attitude with it. Yeah, it's like the best on-the-job experience you could hope for and you're being paid to do it more right. or less because you're rewarding. So was, like, leaving that situation, was the intention, like, let's start our own thing? Or was it... Well, I, you know, like, that was the other thing about the way it ended then, too, like... Warner was Warner Sire was ultimately cool in that yeah. like they gave us white crosses, they gave us ownership of the masters, all artwork related to it, all videos. And fuck, they spent like over a half a million dollars on that record, mm -hmm. so they're just like here, have it. Mm -hmm. They didn't give us New Wave, which is a whole another story, and I'm still a little feeling burned about that, especially about the repress <laughs> that just happened, which we had no involvement in, and no one even gave us a free copy of. You didn't but get anyways, copies, no. <laughs> but anyways, so well, it's nice um, to know that the major labels like living up the reputation after the fact. A yeah, but bit. it's an indie label doing it anyway. Oh. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so like. Um, yeah, I mean, coming out of that, it was like, again, like, I'm really a self-aware person, and I know what's, I realize what's going on, mm -hmm. and it was like, okay, well, we just did our two records with the major label, what are our options? Epitaph. 
like mm -hmm. or like any other label but any other label is going to be perceived as like a step mm -hmm. back or like you, okay and that's where they're going to die yeah or something like that and at the time too i could tell like nobody wanted anything to do with us they like we had a stink on us mm -hmm. so it was just like fuck this like i know our worth like we'll do it on our own because we've done that before and now i even have more knowledge because i just made two fucking records of butch like <laughs> yeah. screw you all like <laughs> <laughs> Is making a concept record, do you find it different than making another record? You know, no. Because people like, always ask me that, too. So I was It's like, always a concept for me. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's always like, what theme am I writing under? Because you're looking at the and record. New Wave was as, a concept record, too, right? Like To some extent. It, I mean, it was the concept was like, we're signing to a major. I've always actually wanted to ask you, the artwork for that, was okay. that... How involved was that during the process? Because there was like prints done for every song, right? Or there was like some sort of... Oh, yeah, yeah. That, which wasn't the original idea, but just happened after. Oh, okay. The happened with after Chris that. Norris. Like, yeah. Okay. But um, I mean, that like the Odyssey for that album's artwork was like, I used to just from zine days would always do like uh, X-Acto knife like cutouts yeah. and stencils yeah. and stuff. So that image I had just been doing as like almost like a doodle in the studio. So we originally had a cover shoot that the photographer who did like a couple Modest Mouse records did. And that was like going to be the cover art. And the photos came back and we were like, oh, fuck, these are not cool. Oh, like, it was supposed to be you guys on the cover? No, it wasn't. As it was oh. like of other things. Oh, okay, okay. And yeah, the, yeah. the main th problem was that it was like we didn't take into account that he was taking photos in winter and that it was going to be a <laughs> summer release. So we're like, everyone looks cold in these photos. <laughs> and the record is coming out in like June. All right. So we can't do this, you know? You need a song in the summer. And that's the one hope you have with that major. <laughs> They're wearing scarves on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, actually, artwork-wise, too, is that always been something that's been important? Yeah, you know, There's always like, like a defined aesthetic. It seemed it, it was ori originally to me. I always wanted to do all the album artwork, mm -hmm. on, and it was became something that I, I eventually realized like I had to release some control on. But still, I'm always stoked whenever I have a chance to do anything like that. Do you still art do art for yourself type thing, or just like? doodle and yeah yeah and not not for like any release purposes or anything but uh, but I, I don't have any drawing skills it's more just like collage work and yeah. like that old yeah, yeah. cut and cut and paste style zine work yeah like the uh, winston smith what's his name the guy who did all the dead Ken melanie what's his name the guy who did the dead kennedy's collage art do you remember <laughs> is it west smith i think west? it's winston actually i think it's winston right yeah winston smith okay good okay yeah. or like or like like g from crafts yeah or g from crafts. that was yeah. obviously yeah. my yeah. biggest yeah. influence yeah yeah I guess I went with the color one because I can't, I can't, my mind can't handle black and white. I need to colorize. Um, well, I, I could go on forever, but I want to have you on for a part two, and you've got a full day to prepare for for a show. Right so thank you so much yeah, for doing my pleasure. this. This I, is fun. Yeah. Will you come back for a part two? Oh, hell yeah. Guns yeah. and Roses. Yeah, totally. For an hour yeah. next okay. time. Yeah, you, well, you got to read both the Duff and the Slash book. I've read the Duff book. Cool. The and, Slash book is more real. The Duff book's all like, and then we all lived happily ever yeah. after and never did drugs again, which you just know is bullshit. <laughs> so. I got to say, though, he, we did that, well, I think, has Against Me done Soundwave in Australia? We did uh, Big Tay out. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. We did we did Soundwave, and he, and he was on Soundwave, and, like, I saw his trailer open to crack the first day and I grabbed Jonah our drummer who's the other hardcore nerd in the band and so I went over there and I'm just like we're gonna go talk to Duff and I just knock on the door and I'm like hello Duff McKagan my name is Damien Abraham I play in a band called Fucked Up let's talk about Fastbacks and he's just like whoa but he's he's cool he super cool out. yeah awesome I, I will say though like we did like the first time I, I met them or saw them or whatever in person was like this LA radio festival and it was Velvet Revolver okay and like seeing them it was just like those are rock stars yeah. like they still have this like aura aura around them yeah. where you're like like even like Duff put on like a Jansport backpack when he was leaving and I'm like oh my god he wears a Jansport backpack <laughs> yeah. like he's so normal he's like, just like us yeah. <laughs> no, no, I know exactly what you're saying like I met Perry Farrell one time and he had that aura too where you're like oh that's why Jane's Addiction is like that band because yeah. you've got that aura it's this thing it's like magic <laughs> I'm going to find that aura one day. Well, <laughs> thank you for sharing your aura with me, Laura. Right I really appreciate it. My pleasure.